This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell in what we call a democracy in the United States. That democracy, it is often said, stops at the schoolhouse door. That is, education is not done in a democratic way, and in that education, students do not have the rights and protections and privileges they experience outside of school. It's also often said that democracy stops at the workplace door, as in workers do not have the same democratic rights and power they have as citizens. When it comes to capitalism, especially its current neoliberal form, that is completely deregulated, it would also appear that democracy stops at the door of economic policymakers. But what if the economy was more democratic? What would happen if formerly public goods were deprivatized and placed back within the commons? How would our world be different if workplaces were more worker-run than privately owned? In the past, such questions would be dismissed as utopian, and as such, any energy spent ruminating over such inquiries were condemned as a, a complete waste of time. Now, with new mathematical programming theory and modern computer capabilities, it's actually possible to consider how a democratically planned economy would work. Yes, today we can plan an economy that is far more utopian. We'll discuss that economy in a few when we have the return of economist and political activist Robin Hanel, who is the main author, among many, of democratic economic planning. Robin is a professor emeritus from American University in Washington, D.C., where he taught for 33 years. Robin's most recent books are Economic Justice and Democracy from Competition to Cooperation, Green Economics Confronting the Ecological Crisis, The ABCs of Political Economy, A Modern Approach, and Alternatives to Capitalism, Proposals for a Democratic Economy, which he wrote with Eric Olin Wright. This is Robin's third appearance here on This Is Hell, having been on the show back in 2005 and most recently in 2010, when he was on to discuss his book, Economic Justice and Democracy, From Competition to Cooperation. In that discussion, Robin explained the 2008 economic crisis that was and arguably still is ongoing. President Obama's failures during that crisis and what that crisis means for the left. You can follow Robin on Twitter at Robin Hanel. That's H-A-H-N-E-L. Also on today's show, we'll tell you what is happening on our Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com. Slash This Is Hell. That's happening tomorrow. There will be This Week in Rotten History. We will, of course, have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff tries to pull magic out of a hat. And Richard will be telling all of us, including me, who is on next week's This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. I have been <laughs> sick as hell. How have you been, Richard? Oh, I'm doing well. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you're sounding pretty gravelly. There. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty stuffed up over here. This oh, boy. It's been going on now for about 12 days. I got real close to going and having a COVID test, even though I've been vaccinated. Right. Hey, can I uh, tell you about a little funny thing I got in the mail? Yes, you can. <laughs> so this is hilarious. I got a mass mailing, and I wonder if you got one too, uh, from a company in Indiana that sells fireworks. No, I did not. So I am assuming, because it's a mass mailing, that 
half of Chicago got this mass mailing of a company that sells fireworks in Indiana. <laughs> and they list their three locations. And it's really funny. It says Merrillville, Indiana, Indiana slash Chicago. Highland, Indiana slash Chicago. <laughs> Burns Harbor slash Chicago. So they're, they're, you know, obviously advocating for people in Chicago to come over to Indiana to buy fireworks, <laughs> which they know are completely illegal in Illinois. What I like about that is Burns Harbor is closer to Michigan than it is Chicago, which is really amazing. Okay, but here's the, here's the highlight. In the fine print, it says, if you are planning to purchase fireworks, the use of which is not permitted in your home state... <laughs> but are to be used in another state where the use of such fireworks is permitted, then a visit to our showroom is the answer to your needs. What the hell? So they're telling you in the fine print when you go there and they ask for your ID to, you know, that to, yeah. so that you're old enough to Buy purchase fireworks and they see your ID is from Illinois and they say, are you using these in Illinois? You say, no, sir. I'm using them in a state where it is legal. <laughs> That's really great that they tell you exactly what to say there. So all legal encumbrances are lifted. That's really And cool. I found out from some other research that if you are shooting off fireworks in Illinois and the fireworks have more than a quarter ounce of explosive materials in it and they catch you and 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 charge you you could be charged with a felony no kidding yes sir holy cow <laughs> though that is a pretty big firework it's got to be like a quarter stick at that size right so last week you may have all noticed i was sounding a bit more midwestern nasally than usual i know i noticed because i was having trouble doing reads like these however i did not notice it was getting worse every day until friday night when i suddenly had a fever and was bouncing back and forth from freezing to feeling like i was on fire as a tip for anyone who is planning on attending or will attend a memorial for a sibling, I strongly suggest you not have more than half of the symptoms related to coronavirus. One of the COVID symptoms of which I was unaware, and to the best of my knowledge, I am not suffering, is new confusion which is kind of confusing because if I was suffering from new confusion, would that confusion not hamper my ability to recognize that I am indeed confused in a new way? The whole thing is very, very confusing to me. But again, my advice to you is if you are planning on doing something like what I did last weekend, and that is to attend a memorial for my brother, I strongly, strongly advise you not have more than a handful of coronavirus symptoms because that's what I did and it sucked. More importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what list are you trying to stay off of? <laughs> <laughs> what list are you trying to stay off of? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can show your appreciation for completely listener-supported, commercial-free, and completely uninterrupted This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Now, because we were only, uh, only able to do this one live show this week, today's show, this week's question from hell will also be next week's question from hell. So there'll be there's an entire week for you to come up with a winning answer. 
Alex, or Richard, I should say, will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our talk with Robin. Again, the question from hell is, what list are you trying to stay off? What list are you trying to stay off? And I'm hoping that Alex sent you the hangover cure, Richard, brave enough to be streaming Sadly, live. he did not. <laughs> All right, I guess I will be reading it. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. This week's Hangover Cure is what appears to be a promotion for a major junk food producer on TikTok. We have removed all the brand names from this cure to protect the innocent. According to an article at Mashed.com, the spicy tortilla chip hangover cure TikTok users swear by some TikToker who does not deserve to be named demonstrated the new hangover cure in a video that now has over 146,000 views. The story reports laid before the TikToker are a purple bag of spicy sweet chili flavored tortilla chips and a tub of sour cream. He spoons a big old dollop of sour cream onto a chip and for a moment he looks like he might throw up. But he pushes through and puts the whole thing in his mouth. Afterward, he claims the snack was just the thing he needed. Of course, in typical TikTok fashion, the comments section is filled with users suggesting their own various renditions of the chips and sour cream cure. One user suggests hot corn puffs made by the same company in sour cream. Some suggest tortilla chips with cottage cheese, ranch dressing, or cream cheese instead. But ultimately, the comment section seems overwhelmingly in agreement that some form of cheesy, spicy chip topped with a creamy dip is the ticket to curing a debilitating hangover. That makes this week's hangover cure some form of cheesy, spicy chip or puff topped with a creamy dip. Coming up, imagining democratic economic planning, we will also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what list are you trying to stay off of? What list are you trying to stay off? We'll tell you what happened this week in Rotten History. There will be a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. And we'll tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Capitalism, particularly in its current neoliberal form, is anything but democratic, which is weird because the United States constantly claims it is a democracy and boasts about itself being the beacon of democracy as we head into the 4th of July weekend. Let's consider what a more democratic economy would look like. Returning to This is Hell is economist and activist Robin Hanel, who is the main author, among many, of Democratic Economic Planning. Welcome back to This is Hell, Robin. Hey, it's good to be with you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you fine, sir. You sound great. So you write that over the past 40 years, planning for capitalist economies has fallen out of vogue as laissez-faire approaches to economic policy, popularly known as neoliberalism, have emerged triumphant. There is compelling evidence that the turn away from more planned capitalism toward more laissez-faire capitalism over the past decades has diminished economic performance. If laissez-faire economics diminishes economic performance, then why is it pursued? Well, that, that's a good question. Um, and the answer is that it may that diminishing economic performance um, is not really what you know businesses care about. What businesses care about and what the wealthy care about is how the economy is working for them. 
So deregulation um, is something that business fights for. And when it becomes more politically powerful, it wins more deregulation. And when the wealthy discover that their income and wealth is rising faster than any time in recorded history, um, well, they, they are perfectly happy with that. The diminished economic performance, however, I mean, it, it basically takes two forms. Um, one is if you just look at the growth rates of the more of the more neoliberal capitalist economies and compare them to the growth rates of the few economies in the last 30 years, which have engaged in more kinds of capitalist planning, um, economies such as China have dramatically outperformed um, the formerly advanced Western economies in Western Europe and in the United States. Um, and then, of course, if you take a look at income distribution, um, really nobody in the bottom half of the income distribution has experienced any growth in their material standards of living now in the neoliberal economies for going on 30 or 40 years. So that's what we've seen going on. Um, the economies whose performance has been better on any sort of reasonable measure of better um, have been the economies that have engaged in more kinds of planning. Now, I'm not talking about socialist planning, even in China. I know they claim they're still socialist, although I'm not even sure they do claim that anymore. Um, but that's been the situation. And that's all I meant when I said that as people look at the performance of different kinds of capitalism, um, I believe that people are coming to awareness that more planning rather than the abandonment of planning of all kinds, which is what we've seen going on during the neoliberal craze of the past 30 years, actually produces better performance. If there was somebody who was saying, it was thinking, I want to, my goal is to save capitalism from neoliberalism. Can we, could that person simply, you know, could they say, well, all right, let's just go back to the time right before neoliberalism. Can we de-neoliberal capitalism? I don't know. Um, and I don't think anybody else does either. Um, there are those on the far left um, <clears throat> who would have us believe that that is no longer... <clears throat> That's no longer a likely, a likely outcome, that fighting to get back to a more regulated, a somewhat more egalitarian form of capitalism. And, and we have an example of this. Um, we might as well just, it, it's very useful to think of Swedish capitalism in the mid 1970s. Um, they would call it social democratic capitalism. Um, it's also the kind of capitalism that, quite frankly, you know, Bernie Sanders is a major proponent of and has been for his entire political career. So one possibility is that, yes, we can get back to that and we need to fight for reforms that would take us back to that. Um, there are those on the far left who say that is a pipe dream um, and that <clears throat> that's not where we're going to go. Um, instead, we have to directly fight for a totally new a totally new economic system. I am I am personally agnostic on this point. Um, I think that in the here and now, 
most of what we have to do is to be fighting for the kinds of reforms that would take us back toward a far more reasonable, productive, environmentally friendly um, form of capitalism. That those are the struggles that people are going to engage in and that we have to be engaging in those struggles with them wholeheartedly. Um, I also think that as people discover that more planning and making a capitalist economy somewhat more democratic, that those things work, well, then that will whet their appetites for something more. Um, on the other hand, I think history has demonstrated that social democratic capitalism is a very unstable sort of halfway ground. And one can go backwards toward neoliberal capitalism from that kind of a system just as easily as one can go forward as happened um, in Europe, particularly in the Scandinavian countries, and has happened to some extent in the United States. We had a less neoliberal form of capitalism when I was growing up in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, but what I believe is that we, we also need to talk about why any form of capitalism is both in danger of retrogressing to the kind of capitalism we have now, and also is not really capable of providing what people want. If you want economic democracy, if you want economic justice, if you want to protect the environment, then capitalism isn't going to do it. Social democratic capitalism will do it better than neoliberal capitalism, but no form of capitalism will. And that brings the question of, well, is there really an alternative? And in the 20th century, people said, well, yeah, sure, socialism, the Soviet Union. Well, I also think we've discovered, no, that wasn't the answer. Um, so we need to go through a process of answering in a coherent way what kind of a system would actually deliver the economic outcomes that we want. And we have to, and, and we can no longer assume that it's simple. I think early on in the history of socialism, people thought, well, if we get rid of capitalism, it will become readily apparent how we want to run our economies in a better way. Well, it's not readily apparent and it's not as easy as I think early socialists believed. On the other hand, I do think that their vision of what they wanted is still very much the right vision. And so my work has been trying to answer the hard questions of how to make that vision um, realistic, practical, and demonstrate that it is. It is a perfectly feasible alternative um, to any form of capitalism and would provide much, 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 much better economic performance on any measure you want to talk about. I just want to follow up on one thing you said. What, uh, why is social democracy vulnerable to neoliberalism? That's a good question. Well, you, you've left markets in place. You've left private enterprise in place. And if you take a look at the history of what happened politically to the social democratic parties and to the opposition parties in Sweden, in Finland, in Denmark, um, in Norway, what you see is that just because you have, just because you have fought for decades and decades to win reforms, um, to make a capitalist economy better for the average citizen, doesn't mean that those reforms can't be eroded. And that's exactly what happened in those cases. You could, I mean, in the case of the United States, we reformed capitalism in ways that infuriated the capitalist class in the United States 
during the New Deal under Franklin Delano, Delano Roosevelt. And there was a tremendous reaction to that. Um, FDR became the sworn enemy of the capitalist class in the United States. And yet we did have a New Deal. But much of the, instead of that New Deal and those reforms continuing to advance, what we, what we have discovered is that they have been eroded whether it's social security, whether it's unions, whether it's regulation of industries for environmental reasons, all of those things have essentially been eroded because we left in place the institutions that allowed for the powerful capitalist forces that benefit from deregulation and rampant income equality. We left them in place and basically they've won and we've lost. Does capitalism then need, does it have to be inhumane? Does it need to be destructive? Without that destructive quality when it comes to nature, without that inhumanity and in the way that it's cruel to the people who suffer under it, can capitalism be reformed in any way? I think if you leave private enterprise, private ownership of the means of production, and if you leave comp- markets, and com- competition, market competition as your basic forces that are regulating what is happening. I think if you leave those basic institutions in place, then you will get these unfortunate outcomes and you can mitigate damages. My view of social democracy is that successful social democracy can dramatically and in meaningful ways mitigate the damages of an economic system that basically is a system of competition and greed. So we can mitigate the damages, but what I have worked on for 50 years now is why tolerate the institutions that basically consign you to the role of mitigating damages and always being in risk of losing that battle and moving backwards as we have for 40 years under neoliberalism. Why? Why should we put up with those institutions instead of changing our basic economic institutions so we have a system that is compatible with what I call the economics of equitable cooperation instead of a system that basically is a system of competition and greed? Competition and greed. Do you think that uh, capitalism uh, not only does capitalism make us more greedy? Because the idea is that that greed is supposed to motivate us and that and cause competition and lead to innovation. What can be a better motivator than greed? Greed is a powerful motivator. Um, and what's even more powerful is fear. And what market competition essentially does is it puts people in a situation where if I don't try and screw the person that I'm engaged in a market exchange with, they're gonna be screwing me. What we need to do is change the basic relationship between people. What socialists have always championed is that we want, we understand that we have a division of labor. We understand that some people are gonna produce this and some people are gonna produce that. We understand that consumers are gonna want this, are gonna want that. We understand we have a division of labor. We need to manage that division of labor in a way in which we are recognizing and is essentially playing out what we're attempting to accomplish with, we want a system of equitable cooperation. 
Workers want to produce things. They want to produce things in the way they want to. Consumers want to consume things and they want to consume things that they want to consume. That's perfectly fine. How can we actually go about making it relatively easy for workers in their workplaces and consumers in their neighborhoods to do what they want to do when, in fact, what any one of them does involves, it involves others doing other things? So the goal of socialism should always have been, how do you concretely arrange for a practical set of procedures that would allow people who want to engage in equitable cooperation with one another to go about doing so? And I think that was the, I think that was the, the, the essential nugget of vision from early socialist times which got lost track of in various ways in the 20th century with communism and command planning and all sorts of other things. And that if we return back to that vision and realize that it won't just happen by itself, that it has to be thought out rather carefully, then, we'll be, then that will put us on a path in the 21st century um, to try and accomplish the kinds of things that socialists have always tried to accomplish, which is exchange the system of competition and greed, AKA capitalism, which we know does not serve us well, um, for a system of equitable cooperation. You also write that the people who profit most from capitalism have developed an arsenal of weapons to disempower the rest of us. There are bright lights flickering in Times Square, clever consumer goods to buy us off, the alluring myth that we all are middle class, as well as the contradictory myth that anyone willing to work hard can climb up into the middle class or beyond. So how easily or how difficult is it for us to be bought off? And to what extent is capitalism just a system that is constantly trying to buy off the public? I think I think that's a good way to put it. I, I think a, an accurate, quick summary of capitalism is one that is essentially trying to buy off people who discover this isn't working very well for me and convince them that, A, there is no alternative. Human beings are so hopelessly, um, so, so, so hopelessly sort of disfigured that all we are capable of is sort of fighting with one another and engaging, you know, threatening one another is the only, if only if I threaten you, are you going to work hard? Um, well, that's silly. Many of us will and want to work hard without being threatened to do so. If we believe that what we, if we like what we're doing, if we believe what we are doing is productive and useful for others. So there are other ways of motivating people. Um, but we need institutions and a system that relies on those other ways of motivating people rather than simply motivating people out of fear um, and motivating people out of greed. I would think the, tr the, 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 the trick, is that I think what <clears throat> the job that lies ahead of us is we now have a mammoth job, which is most of the world believes there is no alternative. Um, they look at the Soviet Union and the experience of the, you know, formerly so-called socialist economies and say, well, that was awful. Um, and it was awful. And it's not the alternative that we should be championing in the 21st century. Um, and the other thing that's happened is that <clears throat> when people no longer could point to what they thought was an alternative 
in the Soviet Union and say, that's what we want. We basically never worked out anything that was a coherent alternative. And that's the task that lies before us. At the same time that we are fighting all the battles to protect people from the egregious you know, damage that's being inflicted by neoliberal capitalism, damage in the form of incredible income inequality, damage in the form of creating climate change from which none of us are going to come back. So as we fight those, as we fight those, you know, necessary battles in the here and now, I think there is still room for recognizing that socialists never really did do a coherent job of explaining how a different way of making economic decisions would be far better um, and working on that and telling people that we are working on that and we're working on it honestly and openly coming up with better answers. And, you know, I think that in, in some small way, that's I've devoted a great deal of time to that part of our task. And, and democratic economic planning is essentially the, the product of that after 50 years of working as an economist on concrete answers to, you have to have answers to, there's a, there's a ton of economic decisions that had to be, have to be made, different kinds of economic decisions. And unless you can tell people, well, here is how we propose that those decisions be made. How do you propose that we come up with a plan for the economy, an annual plan? How do you propose that we engage in development planning, environmental planning, um, what used to be called manpower planning, but now is, we should, I mean, should be thought of as education planning? How do you do long-run planning and short-run planning and integrate them? And how do you do that in a way that doesn't involve, that doesn't require people to spend inordinate amounts of time in meetings debating with one another without even having the information that's needed to make sensible decisions. How do you actually go about doing that? It's not as simple as early socialists assumed. We need to wake up and realize that. But it can be done. And in the long run, if it's not done, um, we'll be left with nothing more than more or less social democratic or neoliberal capitalism and the danger of always landing back where we are right now. You also point out that hope for an entire system of reasonably accurate Pigovian correctives in a market system is a pipe dream. And that is one of the suggestions that's been floated around there around for a, quite a long time. A Pigovian tax named after English uh, economist Arthur Pigo is a tax assessed against private individuals or businesses for engaging in activities that create adverse side effects for society. So why are higher taxes on those profiting from capitalism's destruction not enough to pay for the adverse effects capitalism has on society. Why can't we just tax the wealthy enough to address the externalities of capitalism? You know, Arthur Pigou is a very interesting figure in, in the history of economic thought. <clears throat> Adam Smith really, at, it's very clear when you read Adam Smith that the problem of externalities never crossed his mind. And he wrote about capitalism, trying to explain to people, you know, with markets, um, we can coordinate this incredible division of labor. Um, and we don't even need people to sort of think things through when they're deciding what to do. Um, but he, he did not, he really did not ever in anything he ever wrote. There's nothing that indicates that he understood what in 20th century economics, we talk about as externalities. And 
Pigou came along and he was the senior professor of economics um, at Cambridge University for his career in the early 20th century for 30 or 40 years. He was the key economist at Cambridge University. And he recognized, you know, there is one little problem with markets, and that is when there are externalities, it's demonstrably true that the markets are not going to lead us to an efficient allocation of resources. Markets will lead us to produce more of goods that have negative externalities associated with their production or negative externalities associated with their consumption. Automobiles is a wonderful example. Market decision-making processes have led us to produce far more automobiles and drive around in far more automobiles than we ever should have from the point of view of simple economic efficiency. Because when you make automobiles in Detroit and sulfur dioxide is put up in the air, that actual cost is an external cost that the decision makers making the automobiles don't take into account. And when people buy automobiles, they don't take into account, they have no incentive to take into account that when they drive them around, they're emitting greenhouse gases. And we are now at the point where if we don't stop doing this, we are going to literally end civilization as we know it within two or three decades. So Pigou was the one who came up and said, well, when these problems arise, we need to do something about it. And what he proposed was called a Pigovian tax. Um, we call them green taxes now. And what goes along with a Pigovian tax would be a Pigovian subsidy. What if some activity, either production or consumption, generates positive external effects? Well, then you want to subsidize that activity to get the efficient amount of it going on. The problem, and so let me be very clear. Capitalism with more Pigovian taxes is better than capitalism with less Pigovian taxes. Um, and we need to fight for Pigovian taxes. Fighting for a carbon tax is fighting for a Pigovian tax. And boy, do we need to fight for it. Now, whether you do it with the tax form or some other form, but essentially you need to do, you need to correct for the fact that emitting greenhouse gases is something that nobody is basically charged for if there's no tax or there's no cap and trade system going on. The problem with Pigovian taxes is there's nothing in the market economy that tells you how high they should be put or how low they should be. And so the trick, is, and I mean, I'm an environmental economist. That's one of the things that I've taught for the past 40 years. And there are all sorts of procedures that we can go through to try and estimate how high it should be. But those are very imperfect procedures, and there's no sort of organic way that the economy helps you figure out just how should we correct for these externalities. Well, one of the advantages of a planned economy and one of, the things that, one of the things that we explain very, very concretely in the new book, Democratic Economic Planning, is how you can incorporate what economists call a demand-revealing mechanism um, into the annual planning procedures so that you actually will end up with a reasonable estimate of what Pigou always called for, which is a Pigovian tax. So we've demonstrated that our annual planning procedure would actually solve this problem where a market economy won't. Now that doesn't solve long run economic planning. Um, that still leaves that to be solved. And that's another thing that we tackle for the first time in this book and, you know, and, and provide some very concrete suggestions for how it is that in a 
democratic socialist economy, you could go about doing envir long-term environmental planning, as well as being sure that during annual operations, producers and consumers are being signaled and forced to take into account what under market systems are called externalities, um, and which are not taken account without Pigovian taxes, and will only be somewhat taken into account by Pigovian taxes, about which there's no way to calculate how high they should be in a market economy. You write that we define economic justice as economic reward commensurate with effort, sacrifice, and need, which is not the same as reward commensurate with the value of one's contribution. How are effort, sacrifice, and need not like contribution? And how might that change the way that we view work? This is a big, this is a big issue. And this is something that socialists have grappled with. In, in my view, socialists have grappled with some difficult issues relatively well. At least we have recognized them. We have argued about them. We have talked about them. We've tried to figure out what to do about them. And then there's other areas where I think when you look back over, you know, the history of 20th century socialism, there's sort of a surprising absence of, well, can you really, can you really argue that socialists grappled um, sort of deeply, whether or not successfully, you know, with certain kinds of issues that have to be grappled with? Income distribution is something that people talk about. <laughs> they talk about a lot. They care about it. Um, and I think traditionally socialists have looked at capitalist economies and said, well, if you own more property, well, then you get income from your property. If you own shares of stock in a corporation, you get dividends. Um, if you are a very highly trained doctor, um, well, then your salary is going to be higher than somebody who is um, maintaining sewers below streets. And socialists have traditionally looked at that and said, well, that's part of what's wrong with capitalism, that income is distributed um, according to how much productive property somebody owns or shares of stock in companies, which is the same thing. And income is distributed according to, well, how valuable in the marketplace, you know, was the labor that you performed. And yet there's nothing fair about either of these things. Now, if people don't put in the same effort as one another, um, if people work in ways where, where, if some people make greater sacrifices when they go to work than others do, I think socialists have long thought, well, yes, then, then it's fair to compensate those who put in more effort, those who make greater sacrifices in work. What would that? If you work down at the bottom of a coal mine, you're making a much greater sacrifice than somebody that works in an air-conditioned office. So I think people can see that there is, that just, there is justice in compensating people for who make greater sacrifices when they work. There is justice in, making, in compensating people who put in more effort, who just work harder than others around them. Um, but that's not what capitalism does. Capitalism does something very, very different. Now, the question is, well, can you design an economy where you reward people fairly? Um, can you, how would an economy go about figuring out if some people were engaging in more effort than others, if some people were making more sacrifices than others? 
is this something you could measure or estimate so that you could reward people that way? And then the second question is, if you rewarded people that way, would that somehow mean that our labor resources are not being allocated most efficiently? And we have addressed those questions now over, you know, 30 or 40 years. Um, and we've come up with answers that we don't claim are perfect. Our answer to, well, who's going to decide if some people are making more efforts or greater sacrifices is it has to be their fellow workers in their workplace, in their worker council. And they have to go about figuring out how to do that as they figure out how to do it. So we've said there, that, is what sh that, is, that is what workers should do in their council. They should somehow come up with a system for rewarding one another according to any differences in efforts or sacrifices that they believe they have made. Um, and we don't claim it's perfect. We don't claim that there won't be people who are not rewarded by their fellow workers as fairly as they should be, in which case we point out, well, that's one of the reasons that you should leave that workplace and go work with some other workers who appreciate what you're doing more. And then we want to be sure the system allows for that to happen. Um, the more difficult part to demonstrate is, can you reconcile that with, with efficient allocating labor resources to where they're most productive? And that's where we believe we've worked out procedures in both annual and long-term planning um, where you can compensate people fairly, as socialists have always argued is, is an important part of our program, what we're fighting for. Um, and yet that does not necessarily have to interfere with using scarce labor productive, scarce labor resources and skills efficiently. So we were always told there is no alternative, but you write that mathematical programming theory and modern computer capabilities have now invalidated the claim that it is technologically impossible to calculate an efficient, comprehensive plan for a modern economy, even in theory. And various price-guided, quantity-guided, gradient, and mixed iterative procedures published in major economic journals in the 1960s and 70s, combined with more recent theoretical work on solutions to principal agent problems, considered considerably weakened the tacit knowledge critique of demonstrating a variety of ways a central authority might try to elicit information about the capabilities of production units that it needs to calculate an efficient plan. So how far has theoretical work about socialist planning advanced with new technology? Have mathematical programming theory and modern computer capabilities proved that socialist planning and socialism is no longer utopian? Were we simply, was there no alternative, but we we're simply waiting for the computer technologies and the mathematical programming theory to come about? You know, this is very, this is a very interesting question and issue. Um, there's... <clears throat> There, there's a there's a there's a debate that unless you're an economist, you're probably not aware of. And it was called the socialist calculation debate. And it began in the early 20th centuries. Um, and some 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 economist names that may be familiar, um, von Mises and Hayek. Oh, maybe somebody who's not an economist might have heard of them. Um, they were basically the mentors for somebody, they were the mentors for, for, for Friedman. And they debated with early socialists in the 20th century about whether a socialist planned economy was even possible. Was it a practical possibility? 
And they argued that it was not a practical possibility, that the amount of calculations that would be necessary were simply beyond for, for to come up with a comprehensive plan were simply beyond the capability. They, they were simply it was technically impossible. Um, and they also argued a more subtle point, which was if the even if it were possible to make these calculations, then the information you would need to have about productive technologies really only resides to a certain extent with the people in workplaces. So unless there was some way that the planners could elicit that knowledge about technical possibilities from those in the workplaces, then the planners could never calculate an efficient plan either. And what I talk about in the book is, well, that has been changed. It's been changed by the advent of, of the te two, two technological changes have sort of changed the answer to at least the first question. And that first question was, but it, is it just technically impossible to calculate a detailed comprehensive plan for the economy? Um, modern computers make that possible. Um, and the tacit knowledge was what was addressed in those in, in that literature that I referred to, you know, by by various economic theories, theorists in in mainstream economic journals in the 1970s. But all of that has to do with is central planning more technologically possible than it was in the early 20th century. And I'm not a champion of central planning in any case. I think we don't want central planning anyway because it does not provide economic democracy. It doesn't provide, it, it's incapable of providing workers with self-management, that that's what's wrong with it. So in my view, it is true that certain technological advances um, during the 20th century made the original argument against comprehensive socialist planning um, much less weighty and strong than many people understand or realize. On the other hand, ironically, the kind of participatory planning that I propose as what socialists would be talking about for the 21st century, it was always possible. Those early socialist visionaries in the late 1800s and the early 1900s who thought, why can't the associated producers and consumers, they didn't, add, they didn't add the consumers, they put it, why can't the associated producers plan amongst themselves how to run the economy? That's what, they, that's what they envisioned. And quite ironically, in my view, what they envisioned, I think, was always possible. Um, because their vision didn't, didn't involve a central planning authority. Their vision didn't involve a... a a central planning authority gathering enough information to calculate a plan. Their vision was always that associated workers in their different workplaces would come together in some kind of way and plan their, their, their joint activities in a democratic and fair way. So I think that was always possible. It wasn't as easy as they thought. And I think that, yes, computers, um, 
new new ways of managing inventories, you know, by the moment. All of this can make planning easier than it was before, but it really wasn't the key to doing what we should have been proposing. Um, it helps. It makes some things easier. It certainly would have made central planning far more efficient than it was. But I don't think that's what we wanted anyway, because I don't think central planning allows for enough self-management for either workers or consumers. And, and that's what we should be striving for. And that's the kind of system that we've tried to sort of work out the details for and answer the hard questions. But how would you take care of this? But how would you take care of that? You write that if women are to be liberated from the feminized ghetto of care work, men will have to change more diapers, prepare more meals, feed more children, and care for more people with disabilities, more children with autism, and more elders with dementia. And this is important for two reasons. One, most importantly, as long as women do more reproductive labor than men and are insufficiently compensated by doing for doing so, half of humanity will continue to be oppressed and exploited. Two, because the work we do day in and day out has a transformative effect over the years on who we become. Time spent in caring labor helps promote empathy for those who are vulnerable in society. So unless men perform their fair share, half of humanity will continue to fail to realize their empathetic potentials. So in a participatory economy, does everyone perform care work as a universal commitment to mutual aid, if you will, necessary for participatory economics to succeed? I think that, I mean, we collectively as socialists, I think, have some things to answer to, to, to answer for. Um, quite honestly, I think that socialists came to environmental awareness um, very, very slowly. Um, and I think that socialists, not all socialists, certainly not women socialists, but most socialists also, I think, came to an awareness about sexism um, far too late. And so I think those are areas in which traditional socialist thinking was most backward. Um, and, and I would admit to, and, 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 and I would admit to that myself. I came to environmental awareness um, long after my wife did. My wife, the environmental economist, had to drag me into environmental awareness. And all of, the, all of the women that I have worked with on various political projects over my 50 years have had to drag me you know, to awareness about um, gender discrimination. What we've tried to do, I mean, part of what is in this new book that was not you know, in previous published versions of our proposal about how to operate a participatory economy. Um, there is a chapter now, which is, I am a co-author of, along with other people, um, including women, who sat down and said, look, you haven't answered yet the question of how will reproductive activity or reproductive labor be handled? And if we don't have, and if we don't have specific proposals for how to be sure that it is not handled the way that it has been traditionally handled, whether it's in the household where women do too much, where women do the the where, where women do most of the work on average, or in the economy, 
where there are tasks that traditionally fall to the secretaries, to women to perform. So we finally have gone and made some very specific proposals about gender caucuses, women's caucuses in workplaces, about affirmative action programs, um, which we believe will be necessary in a socialist economy just as they are also necessary in any economy to avoid the kind of, of gender discrimination, you know, that has been going on for millennia. Um, and we've also made some recommendations of how it is that, how it is that what goes on in households. Um, and, and, that, and that's a chapter where we are throwing out some concrete suggestions. Um, they are more tentative than some of the other chapters. And what we've urged our feminist allies and friends is that this is also a discussion that needs, this is a discussion that needs to be ramped up. That a great deal of feminist literature, the overwhelming majority of feminist literature is a very accurate and compelling catalog of what is wrong. But that's different from saying, well, if we don't want those things to keep happening, what concretely would we have to do to prevent them from happening? And we don't believe for a moment that if there were a successful socialist revolution and a socialist economy you know, were created, that these problems would go away. And therefore that there have to be some, there have to be some answers to the question of how do you prevent this kind of gender discrimination from continuing? And what we've thrown out there in one of the chapters, um, my, my co-authors and I have thrown out there some suggestions saying, let's open the debate. Um, let's open the discussion about the pros and cons of these procedures. We'll make some proposals and we are very anxious to hear where people think they, don't go, they haven't gone far enough. Um, people feel they have, they, they've gone too far or people feel, no, this isn't the way to accomplish this, and this would be a better way to prevent these outcomes from happening in a desirable society. So that's the nature of that chapter. Um, and it is the first time that we've gone into print saying we recognize, I've always recognized this problem. And one of the things I used to say when I gave talks and, and women from the audience would say, well, you haven't said anything about how a participatory economy would you know, address most of the problems that I care about which are gender discrimination in workplaces, in households, in society. And my answer was, you're right. And it doesn't mean I don't think those are important things. It just means I don't know how to do that. I haven't figured, I'm not the one that has the answer. And it took a long time and it took finding some other people, you know, to help on that. But I do think that it's important that feminists and socialist feminists not only point out all that, not only point out all that is wrong in how things are working now, but also engage in some, but also start to debate and how are we going to prevent that from, how are we going to prevent that from happening in the future? Because it isn't going to stop, you know, just because, just because we replace capitalism with some sort of socialism. We were talking earlier about how capitalism views the world as naturally fearful and uh, naturally greedy. In your opinion, why is capitalism so 
pessimistic about humanity? Why is that necessary within capitalism? You know, for for a long time, um, the underlying debate that the, the debate that underlines so much discussion and argument basically comes down to some people saying, you know, people are this way. People are greedy. People are fearful. Um, and other people saying, people don't have, that's not, that's not how people are. People don't have to be that way. Some people are not that way. My better self is not that way. And the reality is that people can be both. People can be fearful. People can be greedy. People can also be empathetic. People can also simply want decisions to be made democratically. People can be fair to one another. So in my view, do we want to, and, and I think what capitalism has done is we, capitalism basically relies on and further, further develops one side of human nature. So certain things that we can be is what capitalism is, is what capitalism rests on. And what socialists have always said is that that's not the only side of human nature there is. And we'd like an economic system that basically relies on and builds upon our better selves rather than our worst selves. And I think that's one way to think about what's the difference between capitalism and socialism. And it's certainly one way that I've thought about in your, when, when you're trying to design decision-making procedures, how can you base those, how can those decision-making procedures basically rely on, take advantage of, and further sort of advance the better side of human, of, of human nature, um, rather than take us back to our worst selves, which is what I think capitalism does in many respects. One last question for you, Robin. We have been speaking with economist and activist Robin Hinnell. He is the author, main author, among many, of Democratic Economic Planning. As we do with all of our guests, Robin, our final question for you is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So you're talking about our worst selves, and we've often had discussions here on our show about our own complicity in... Uh, matters like capitalism, the cruelties of capitalism. And I n understand that that brings it to a discussion of individual choice, and we want to keep it in a discussion of collective action. But at the same time, in our worst selves, we can be complicit in the system that is so cruel to us. We, uh, For instance, we are very quick to embrace new technologies. Why don't we consider the externalities of our actions under capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I, I see this as the, the individual lifestyle solution um, versus the, I am going to, I am going to join, I'm going to joyously join with those who are trying to do something collectively to correct the problems. Um, and I've always been a strong proponent of the second approach, 
because I think it's the only one that works. Yes, there is room for um, consuming personally in a socially responsible way, um, eating vegan, not eating meat. There is room for um, recycling everything as an individual. There is room for cutting down my, my ecological footprint as an individual. My own view is that if people concentrate their energies on those individual solutions, we will fail to correct the problems. And if people more often find political activity to work in with others, various organizations um, to try and correct the things that are wrong, that that is how progress actually is achieved. Um, so I, I've always, I, I've always taken sort of my own personal view is that the productivity of joint political action um, in different forms is far greater than the productivity of individual lifestyle lifestyle solutions. Um, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> and it's a good. But that's my answer to your question. <laughs> that's a good opinion too, Robin. Thank you so much for being back on our show again. Economist and activist Robin Hennell is the main author, among many, of Democratic Economic Planning. This is Robin's third appearance on our show, and we cannot thank you enough for being back on. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you very much, Mark. Hey, and Robin, <laughs> one other thing I just want to say: thank you for rescheduling a couple of times too because of my illness. So thanks again. No problem. Glad you're better. Thank you, sir. Take care. Take it easy. Putting people before profits since 1996. This is hell if you like what you just heard. You can hear another conversation we had way back in 2005 with Robin Hanel by subscribing to tomorrow's Friday's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. That Patreon podcast airs at 10 a.m. Chicago time, live streaming, and then it is podcast at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell shortly after. The discussion that we had back in 2005 with Robin focused on a book Robin had co-authored with Z Magazine founder Michael Albert titled The Political Economy of Participatory Economics. And if you become a subscriber, you can also find in our Patreon archives an interview we did with Michael on the same topic, which is a kind of contentious conversation, one of my very favorite interviews, early interviews that we did here on This Is Hell. So if you enjoyed today's conversation on democratic economic planning, want to know more about participatory economics, sign up for our Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday, 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash This Is Hell and is posted at the same place shortly after. Also on tomorrow's Patreon podcast, Heading into the 4th of July, Independence Day weekend, during my weekly monologue, I will be showing my true red, white, and blue colors and revealing exactly how patriotic I am to these, the United States of America. So before enjoying the fireworks, you'll want to gather the family around the old radiola for this one. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how some of our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is, what list are you trying to stay off of? So correct me. Am I wrong in correcting that? Uh, well, you, people aren't, you're not supposed to, it's like a very Midwestern thing to end on a preposition. So I think that Alex is trying to avoid that. And I try to avoid it too, but sometimes it comes off a little bit clunky. 
I don't know. When you just say staying off, staying off, uh, uh, it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> Take it up with the editor. <laughs> Greg G says Forbes billionaires list. <laughs> oh, well, congratulations on staying off that list. <laughs> Jeez, that's a tough one to stay off. Krimsky crackers answers serious boat list. <laughs> okay. Noah O answers any and all top 10 lists. Mm-hmm. Garrett S answers the Death Note notebook list. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Sarah M answers definitely the Nocturnes. Leon. All right. Warren L answers the question What list are you trying to stay off? Warren L. answers, list of ingredients in soylent green. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good list to stay <laughs> off of. Neil C. answers, my girlfriend's ex-boyfriend's list. <laughs> and I think we'll end there because the next one has a big discussion. So, All right, so we'll get back to some more. Uh, we will have more of your answers in a few following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. This week, Jeff tries to pull magic out of a hat. Again, the question from Al is, what, are you what list are you trying to stay off? What lists are you trying to stay off? The person with our favorite answer no, to this week's can't, question you can't, you can't not do it. <laughs> Your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. Go ahead. Prove me wrong. This is Hell and Richard I Know You Have. Hefe on the line. Magic! Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I was going to talk about magic as if there is an enemy by the name of Dawkins Harris Hitchens, whom I must rebut, rebuke, and spank, lest humankind plunge into disaster. I was going to talk about magic as a food, a necessity. Why? Because this week has been so roller coaster, I can't get a grip on it. I can barely get a foothold on the slippery, sizzling earth. Kind of a mixed bag this week or so is what I'm saying. We got a building collapse with 150-something people missing, but we really won't know how many till we dig them out. It's similar to the building disaster in London last year, and there's a similar sense that Reagan and Thatcher's plans to starve the public sector is yeah, really starting to bear fruit. Of course, both collapses are reminiscent of 9-11, but we can't possibly blame that on imperialist overreach and the imminent downfall of the West, can we? But on the upside, we did have some criminal indictments come down against the Trump team, and Rudy Giuliani lost his license to practice law. But then again, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court let convicted rapist of unconscious women he himself drugged unconscious, Bill Cosby, out of jail. And there was a Ph.D. white supremacist shooter who killed two black people in an incident in Massachusetts no one's talking about. And the Pacific Northwest is now the same temperature as the surface of Mercury. Ups and downs. Good news, bad news. But yesterday... The final day of Pride Month, I'd like to tie this in with Pride Month, Donald Rumsfeld 
demented fascist war and peace criminal under no less than five administrations up and died. So all right, as they say in poker, call. He and Dick Cheney were joined at the junk early on under Nixon. Reagan was their third boss. Reagan was to AIDS and HIV what Trump is to COVID-19. Maybe Rumsfeld didn't have that much to do with that part of the Reagan regime, but it's still good he died. Hurrah! Huzzah! Rumsfeld's dead. Rumsfeld's dead. Everybody dance and sing. We can close this all on an up note. Right? Rumsfeld dead. That is big and beautiful enough to take center stage as the curtain rings down on June 2021, closing Pride Month with Rumsfeld losing his one precious garbage life is the splash. It's like there was a new star born in the sky over Stonewall at the best possible moment when everyone orgasms. Oh, such joy. Oh, Jeff, he wasn't such a big fish. He was a henchman, you say. Yes, that's the best thing you can say about Donald Dagwood Bumstead Rumsfeld, born under a bad sign, a no-vacancy sign that kept flickering on and off in 1932 in the vermin-infested basement of a roach motel. Yes, yes, but he was the henchman of all henchmen. He was the henchman's henchman. Rumsfeld could have been a great man had he lived in an age where the size and weight of one's skull determined the outcome of one's career. But he was wooed by the siren song of power, not just of power, but of being right, being important, making the big calls, the right calls, taking a big obese bite out of the world. During the course of his life, he somehow convinced himself that geopolitical stability was the key, the talisman the golden goblet from which to guzzle the Santorum of Ares. And of course, the key to that key, the key to stability, was U.S. military dominance. All in the service of U.S. military dominance, all right and wrong, all murder and mayhem, all scheming and spying for U.S. military supremacy. Two million Indo-Chinese dead? For stability. Latin America under rampant fascist bloody tyranny? For stability. Panama, Grenada, Libya, for stability, and when he actually had the authority to call the shots. Three quarters of a million Afghanis displaced, and any excuse to invade Iraq. For stability, torture, torture, and more torture, for stability, anything and everything, social cohesion, whether foreign or domestic, workers' rights, human rights, public well-being, all were secondary to geopolitical stability, which he defined as... No one he had to see on a daily basis getting bombs dropped on them. For that, all must be sacrificed to the sacred golden bull of U.S. military superiority. And in the end, he never learned his lesson. He just died. In his final moment, the devil grabbed him by the face holes like a bowling ball and yanked him out of his physical existence. And then he was reincarnated as an ostracized stink bug, rejected by stink bug society. And I don't know what happened to him after that. And that is joy, my fellow humans, mammals, vertebrates, eukaryotes. That is the reason that today we rejoice. That is the reason the mountains skip like rams and the clouds like lambs, because death comes to us all, all of us who have tasted life, sometimes tragically, sometimes comically, but sometimes 
foulness itself dies. Not that foulness has disappeared from the earth, but a very significant foulness has been snuffed out. And that, my loves, is magic. This has been the moment of truth. Uh, good day. So Rumsfeld bombed the world for geopolitical stability, and then Joe Biden, as president, has bombed uh, Iraq as well of Syria, as well as uh, Shia militias in Syria. And both he and Nancy Pelosi have said that those attacks were for domestic security. Because, <laughs> as you yeah. know, when I walk down the street, I have Iranian militia members, Shia members threatening me on a regular basis, and I'm getting a little bit tired of it. How about Well, you? They're, they're always breathing down my neck. I can't stand it. And the whole thing about, like, the overdue library books that they're always hounding me about, <laughs> God, it drives me up the wall. Chuck, I got to say. Yes, sir. Off is a preposition. <laughs> so you can't say, what list do you want to stay, stay off? off. And and not and, uh, end it with a preposition. Position. You're right. That's a good point. Oh. Off is a so preposition. So you might as well itself. say off of. And if you were going to use the twisted thing of what what list of which are you trying? That's that, where they no have to way. throw no, of Forget which in there somewhere. Yeah. You know what? There's no such rule, by the way. In fact, you know what Winston Churchill said about the rule about not ending a sentence with a preposition. Yes. And I can't remember the exact quote, but I do remember it, it ends with a preposition. He's, Yes, he said, that is something up with which I, I will, will not put. put. Yes, that's right. And uh, But the weird thing is that it is something that is of a Midwestern accent I have found in my life. I found people who do not ever end sentences in prepositions, and I find it to be odd. And then when I end a sentence in preposi- with a preposition, I have been corrected by people. So, I don't know. You know, Chuck, I'm, I know I... I correct people on their pronunciation, on their grammar. I'm a total Nazi that way. But Chuck, I think the way you speak is beautiful. I think the way everyone on this show has spoken is beautiful. Even if sometimes I go, why is she doing a vocal fry? Or why why are they stopping and saying, um, or sort of all the time when they just mean the thing? Um, I, you know, Chuck, I have to, I have to apologize to Richard Norwood for calling him Jim when I was apologizing for, for, for volume shaming him. Uh, uh, good. It just, I don't know how I'll, what, what mistake I've just made, but I'm sure there's an addition to the list of apologies I need to make to Richard Norwood, who's perfect. <laughs> Richard, are you accepting Jeff's apology? Oh, absolutely. All right. I'd like to see that in writing from both of you. (laughs) I'd like to hear it on air. Oh, wait, I did hear it. (laughs) And And at a substantially perfect volume. I need that to be uh, witnessed by at least one religious representative as well. Man, I need a drink. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is held. Jeffy, stay beautiful. Okay. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History, on June 28, 1904, 117 years ago, this past Monday, the Danish ocean liner SS Norge was bound for New York with 727 passengers aboard, more than 200 over capacity. 
And when we're being told in rotten history how many people are on a ship's manifest, things are not going to go well for those on board. The Norse went off course in rough weather and ran aground on a reef near the tiny island of Rockall, an isolated rock in the middle of the North Atlantic, almost 200 miles west of Scotland. While, or with a hole torn in its side, the ship began sinking, and the crew of the Norge lowered eight lifeboats that quickly became overcrowded. So, as more desperate passengers tried to climb aboard the boats, they were beaten away with wooden oars. Worst cruise ever. Most of the lifeboats capsized anyway, and the big ship disappeared under the waves in 12 minutes. More than 600 people died, which means more than 100 passengers and crew actually survived, which is crazy, because where would you go except for Rockall? The sinking of the Norge was just the worst in a long series of nautical mishaps. At or near the island of Rockall, a solitary chunk of granite about 100 feet wide and 56 feet high in a vast expanse of ocean, Rockall is utterly desolate, uninhabitable by humans, and covered in barnacles and bird droppings. But in the 20th century, it would become the focus of a territorial dispute by nations seeking various legal rights to the ocean area surrounding it. In 1955, fearing that the Soviet Union might set up a base on Rockall to spy on NATO missile tests, the UK sent its navy to formally claim the tiny island for the crown. The sailors landed at Rockall, climbed to its summit, solemnly raised a British flag, installed an automated beacon, and set up a two-man guard sentry that remained in place just long enough for a photo shoot. The barnacle and bird-dropping covered rock was the last ever land grab by the British Empire, and the fact that it was covered with barnacles and bird crap is kind of apropos. The British claim was later challenged by other European nations interested in fishing rights and the possibility of crude oil under the adjacent ocean floor. In 1979, the British band Gang of Four made sly reference to the rock all dispute in their song Ether on the album That's Entertainment, which is one of my favorite songs, and I did not know what that final verse of rock all references was about until now. And in a 1997 protest against oil extraction, a group from Greenpeace briefly set up camp on rock all and declared it an independent country, but to this day, the territorial status of rock all remains unresolved. So, a ship hits a rock in the Atlantic off of Scotland. 600-some aboard died. Britain then occupied and claimed the bird crap-covered rock during the Cold War. Gang of Four wrote a protest song about the rock. And Greenpeace used the rock as a protest site. For a rock that is uninhabitable by humans and covered with bird guano and barnacles, it sure has seen a lot of human activity. Also in Rotten History, July 1st, 1917, 104 years ago today, Thursday, African-American residents in East St. Louis, Illinois, located across the Mississippi River from St. Louis, Missouri, had been terrorized for weeks by groups of white people who resented them for migrating from the South to seek factory jobs in the area where World War I had created a boom economy. In other words, this is the kind of history that those who supposedly oppose critical race theory, even though they don't know what it is, do not want ever mentioned in their schools. If it makes racist white people uncomfortable, they will have none of it. And on July 1st, several 
that July 1st, 1917, several white men with guns drove through a black neighborhood of East St. Louis, Illinois, in a Ford Model T firing at pedestrians and into homes. Residents with guns came outside and shot back at what they thought was the same car, but was actually another Model T containing police officers. Two cops in that car were killed, and news of the incident ignited three days of all-out violence in which white mobs rampaged through black neighborhoods, killing whomever they could find. And no, CNN is not doing a special on what happened 104 years ago today in East St. Louis. The white mob set houses on fire and shot the residents as they came out. W.E.B. Du Bois reported that babies were grabbed from their mothers' arms and thrown into the flames. Other black residents were captured and hanged, beaten to death with rocks and lead pipes, or chopped up with butcher knives. Still others were forced into the Mississippi River only to drown as they tried to swim to the other side, where charity groups in St. Louis proper were sheltering refugees. Local police and Illinois National Guard troops were sent into East St. Louis, but most did little to stop the violence, and some even took part in it themselves. The journalist Ida B. Wells of the Chicago Defender would later estimate that up to 150 black men, women, and children were killed in the 30, or I'm sorry, in the three-day massacre, and some 6,000 were rendered homeless. And even after the worst violence subsided, sporadic fires and shootings continued for weeks as black residents began a mass exodus from the city. So thanks to Ronaldo, who does the research and the primary writing of Rotten History for reminding us that the 1921 Tulsa race massacre is not the only race massacre that was happening 60 plus years after the end of the Civil War. Sure, it's the only one discussed, so it sounds like it's an anomaly, but it was not. U.S. history is filled with post-Civil War massacres of black Americans of African descent, For more information on all of the massacres that CNN is not doing documentaries about, check out the site of the Zinn Education Project at zinnedproject.org, named for Howard Zinn, zinnedproject.org. And if you just search on massacre, you'll see plenty of massacres of black people following the Civil War. And it's really rotten history. And that's really awful history and we should recognize that history and not erase it and this is hell richard please remind us again what is this week's question from hell and tell us how a few more of our listeners are answering so far yes this week's question from hell is which list are you trying to stay off and martin f has an answer and i'm not sure he quite understands the question all right Because, Martin, this is a list you do not want to be on. Okay. He answers, his answer is Schindler's List. And if ever there was a list you want to be on, that would be it. Martin, I'll give you a little spoiler. Schindler's List was a list of names of the people he saved from the Nazis. (laughs) So it is kind of a list you do want to be on. Exactly. (laughs) It's not a movie you want to participate in, but it's total. I'm on board with you on that one, Richard. That's very good. Sharon O answers, people are stupid list. (laughs) Which list are you trying to stay off of? Andrew S. answers, the question from hell, (laughs) runner-ups. 
Kim G answers a self-flagellating listicle. Uh, Wojak? Okay. Is that how you pronounce his name? Sure. Wojak? Yeah, it's good enough. The A-list. So far, so good. <laughs> Mark C answers list of the listless. <laughs> right. John T answers the list of the Costa Con- Concordia. So the passenger list of the Costa Concordia. Yeah, I see. That. that is not a list I would want to be on either, or any cruise ship list. Exactly. Adam A. answers the DCC donor list. They're nice. And our last answer is Joel G. answers the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Didn't know they had a list. We'll have more of your answers next week here on This Is Hell, beginning on Tuesday. When we are back from the three-day holiday weekend, again, the question from hell is, what list are you trying to stay off? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want that is currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Richard, do you have any idea of who is going to be on any of next week's shows? Yes, I do. Oh, hot dog. El Patron Alexander has given you Monday off. Yes. Tuesday, we have Brian Burrow and Chris Tomlinson on their book, Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. All right. And we're still working on the rest of the week. And Jeffy will be back on Thursday, of course. This week's Hangover Cure is some form of cheesy, spicy chip or puff. Topped with a creamy dip. Thanks to today's guest, Robin Hinnell, author of Democratic Economic Planning. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell when we will be playing our 2005 interview with today's guest, Robin Hinnell. And I will be telling you exactly how patriotic I really am. And for regular listeners of This Is Hell, you are probably not going to be surprised at my level of patriotism. For the good old U.S. of A., I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing today again, Richard Norwood. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on today's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, Visit thisishell.com.